We'll be reading a fairly lengthy section, but from Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upwards. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire for to us. A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. And let's pray together and ask the Lord for his help over the next few minutes as we study this in more detail. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before your word this morning and ask that you would enable us to understand it and ask that you would allow us to be open enough to apply it to ourselves that we would be changed, transformed to look more and more like your son, Jesus, to rely more and more on you as Lord and King. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now we have watched a hare give a bear a Christmas that he would never forget. We've, some of us, been left misty-eyed as Monty the Penguin found the love of his life on Christmas morning. And this year, hearts have been warmed, at least some of them, as we watched a little girl give a telescope to the man on the moon. I checked YouTube yesterday afternoon, and this year's effort has been watched over 21 million times already, and it's already given rise to an Aldi parody and a Star Wars remake, and I did say that correctly, a Star Wars remake. Love it or loathe it, John Lewis are the undisputed heavyweight champions of the Christmas advert. And it's become a bit of an institution. People start looking forward to it from around November time each year. But I wonder if you can remember last year, where there was a bit of a contender for the title. Sainsbury's marked the centenary of Christmas 1914, by telling the story of the famous Christmas truce during the First World War. The advert was a bit controversial. Some people felt that it was taking advantage of the story for, well, to sell a few bars of chocolate more than anything else. But it was a pretty emotive advert nonetheless, if you can remember it. And mainly because the story it told was true. Listen to an extract from the diary of Captain Sir Edward Hulse, dated the 25th of December, 1914. At 10 a.m., I was surprised not to find a single man left in my trenches. I saw, to my amazement, not only a crowd of around 150 British and Germans at the halfway house, which I had appointed opposite my lines, but six or seven such crowds all the way down our lines. Every sort of souvenir was exchanged, addresses given and received, photos of families shown. It was absolutely astounding. If I'd seen it on film, I would have sworn it was faked. It's a powerful story. For just one day, men from both sides of the conflict of World War I stopped shooting. Amidst all the horror of what was a truly horrific war, Christmas united people in a celebration of peace, of goodwill. And in the passage that we've just read together, we see something of a similar picture. 
Many of us will be familiar with at least a couple of the verses that we read this morning. The, for, us, uh, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given verses. We read them um, most Christmas times. They find their ways uh, into nativity plays and carol services every year. But the rest of the reading is perhaps a little bit less familiar to most of us. It's from a book of the Bible called Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. He spoke God's message to God's people. And he did that around 750 years before the birth of Jesus. And in our passage this morning, Isaiah tells God's people, the people of Judah, that there's a cloud on the horizon. War is coming. And so we read at the end of chapter 8, things are looking pretty bleak for God's people. Read verse 22 with me. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Hardly the sorts of words we'd associate with Christmas time, are they? But just as was the case with the Christmas truce of 1914, it's against the backdrop of the darkness of armed conflict, of the horrors of war, that Isaiah holds out hope, hope of something better, both for the people of Judah and for us this Christmas time. And that's what we're going to look at in our first point this morning. You'll see on your service sheet, if you've got one of those with you, there are a number of points that might help you as we follow through the service. So the first point is war is over if you want it. So we reach the end of chapter 8 and we read of gloom, we read of darkness, we read of anguish. Why? What is it that's making things look so bleak for the people of Judah? Well, we find that out earlier on in chapter 8. If you read again with me, follow along in verse 7. Behold, the Lord is bringing up against them, that's Judah, the waters of the river, many and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Now, Isaiah uses poetry, and it's maybe a bit tricky for us to get our heads around when we first read it through. But what he's saying is that the regional military superpower of the time, a kingdom called the kingdom of Assyria, is about to burst its banks, is about to break through its borders like a river in spate. And that Judah, God's people, will be flooded. Not only is war coming, says Isaiah, but guys, there's no way you're getting away from it. You're going to be crushed. And as if that wasn't enough, Isaiah tells Judah that that isn't the only problem they're facing. Verse 21 of chapter 8. They, that's the people of Judah, will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. Now, we're almost at the time of year when newspapers and television media start having their reviews of the year. And some of the most emotive and, I suspect, upsetting images that we'll see of the year 2015 are those of refugees crammed into boats on the Mediterranean. People displaced 
from their homes by wars in Syria, as we've been remembering this morning, and from elsewhere, looking for sanctuary. And Isaiah is telling the people of Judah to expect just that. After being crushed by Assyria, as they burst through their banks, the people are going to be forced out of their land, and they're going to be made to wander the earth as refugees. And a very Merry Christmas to you. It's not very festive, is it? But thankfully, he doesn't finish there. Move on into chapter 9 and verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And he continues to show what that light will look like. Verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah says that the destruction and the displacement that you're about to face from the Assyrians one day will be a thing of the past. It will be nothing more than a memory. That warriors' boots, that blood-soaked army uniforms will be thrown onto a giant bonfire. God promises the end of war. He promises the end of oppression. And that promise doesn't just go to the people that Isaiah was speaking to, to the people of Judah. It goes to us too. See, all the way through Isaiah's prophecy, he has both a short lens and a long lens on his camera. He speaks directly to the people of Judah and the situations they find themselves in, offering hope. But he also speaks of the world that God promises to those who follow him now and throughout all of history. And that includes us here this morning, those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus, a world in which every pair of warrior's boots, every blood-stained piece of clothing will be burned on a fire. The darkness of war will be over, and there will be peace on earth. Now, isn't that a wonderful thought this Christmas time? It's the Christmas truce that we all long for, lasting peace. War is over if you want it. But that's not the full story. You'll see on the service sheet uh, my title for this morning, which is War is Over If You Want It. And I pinched it from a song by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And if you've been brave enough or foolish enough to venture near any shops this December time, you've probably heard that song roughly 140 times by this stage in December. And if you're anything like me, you just tend to let the song wash over you without thinking much of it. But when you take a moment to listen to the words of that song, there is a message behind the lyrics, and I suspect it's a message that a lot of us would probably find ourselves agreeing with if we were asked. The message is that war is bad, and that the end of all war would usher in an idyllic world. That seems to be the sort of world that Isaiah is holding out for the people of Judah. An idyllic world where war is no more, where oppression is nothing but a memory. But the question I want to ask you this morning is, is that enough? If it really were the case that every warrior's boot, 
that every blood-stained piece of armor were to be burned on a fire. Every AK-47 and landmine melted down and destroyed, and all of the armed conflicts all over the world were finally at an end. Would things really be perfect? Or would we still live in a world of broken family relationships and friendships, often made all the more obvious at Christmas time? Would we still live in a world of selfishness and of greed, which our Christmas culture takes great joy in celebrating? See, we might like to think that the end of all war would at least make the planet a much better place to live, but when we start scratching away at it, there is still a fundamental problem that needs to be addressed. And for all that Isaiah holds out this picture, this idyllic picture of a war-free world, for Isaiah, the war that the people of Judah are facing, it's just a symptom. It's a consequence of a much deeper problem. And removing that symptom does not cure the disease. And we'll see that in the next point on your service sheet. Is that enough? War is just a symptom. So if it is the case that war is just a symptom, what is the disease? What's the underlying cause of the war that the people of Judah are facing? Well, if we were summing it up in one word, it wouldn't be the word oppression. It wouldn't be the word darkness. It wouldn't be the word war. It'd be the word trust. You see, Judah was a pretty small kingdom, a pretty small group of people. And they found themselves vulnerable to attack from neighboring tribes, neighboring kingdoms. And if you read back, if you take the time this afternoon to read back into Isaiah chapter 7, you'll read that Isaiah had been threatened by two other neighboring kingdoms, a kingdom confusingly called Syria, not Assyria, Syria and Israel. And the threat from Syria and Israel had made the people of Judah quite nervous. So in response, well, they'd been trying to think of how best to deal with this problem, this impending threat. And so they'd been wheeling and dealing on the, uh, the political scene to try and protect themselves from that threat. And they decided, let's make an alliance. Let's bond ourselves, bind ourselves to the big boys, to the kingdom of Assyria, the big bullies of the area, and an Assyrian king, a guy called King Rezin. Now, that might seem like a bit of detail that's not really necessary, but it's important we understand the political background for us to see the underlying problem behind this disease. Because Isaiah tells us that this threat, the threat of impending invasion, left the people of Judah with a choice to make. And we read that in verse 6 of chapter 8. Because this people, that's Judah, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and instead rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. Now that phrase, the gently flowing waters of Shiloh, refers to the water supply to Jerusalem. It was a symbol of God's goodness to them, how he'd sustained them, how he'd looked after them. So Isaiah says that when Judah were threatened with war from Israel and Syria, the people of Judah were left with two options. You either cling to King Rezin, you trust in your own diplomacy, you trust in your own political intelligence, you trust in your own ability to wheel and to deal, or you trust in God and his goodness to you. 
And Isaiah says that the people of Judah refused the waters of Shiloh. They refused to submit themselves to God's care. And the point is, and the point of this whole section, is that in doing so, they denied that God was God at all. We'll do things our own way. Thank you very much. We know what's best for us. And to illustrate the point, Isaiah shows us that on the ground in Judah, not just in a big political sphere, but on the ground in Judah, there were a couple of telltale signs in the lives of the people that they'd rejected God and instead were trusting in themselves. Firstly, they feared anything other than God. Verse 12 of chapter 8. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. A sign that the people don't trust God is quite how terrified they are at the threat of being invaded. And they're so terrified that they start jumping at shadows. They start creating conspiracy theories. And the point is, they're so scared of this war because they don't have a big enough view of their God. Notice that Isaiah calls God the Lord of hosts, as if to make the point. He isn't small. He isn't parochial. He is God Almighty. You can trust him. But they don't. They have a fearing problem. And secondly, the people of Judah have a hearing problem. They'll listen to anything other than what God has to say. Verse 19 of chapter 8. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? People were so scared of this impending war that they start wading into the world of the occult to find answers. They're consulting mediums and spiritists, tarot cards, They are literally crystal ball gazing, trying to get some insight into what the future might hold for them. And behind both of these problems, this fearing problem, this listening problem, is the same underpinning fact. They do not trust God to be God. They don't trust him as their king, and they'd rather take things into their own hands. In Isaiah 9, light shines into darkness, but that darkness is not just war. It's not just oppression. It's much more deep-rooted than that. It's a rebellion against and a rejection of God. It's people ignoring him and choosing to go their own way. Well, so what? What difference does that make to, to you and I this Christmas time? See, we might be quite content to pin all of the darkness in our world on faceless evils like war, like oppression. And it's quite convenient to do so because they are another They are somewhere out there. If only those things were done away with, then we could be truly happy. But Isaiah says the problem's much closer to home than that. Now, for you, this past year might have been one where, well, to be honest, life's gone okay. It feels like you haven't really needed God to get through life at all. I'm doing just fine on my own, thanks. But the problem for the people of Judah became really obvious when they were threatened with uncertainty, with invasion. That's where it became really obvious where their trust lay in themselves. And it also became evident that they were completely ill-equipped to sort the problem out themselves. 
And I wonder if you can relate to that. Can I ask you this morning, to whom or what do you look when life looks uncertain, when there are clouds on the horizon? Do you find yourself, like the people of Judah, feeling on edge, feeling exposed and vulnerable? Do you find yourself willing to listen to anything that might give you some kind of inside track on what's coming down the pike? Because if the underlying issue isn't just of faceless evils like war, but of trusting myself instead of trusting God, then the, the darkness that Isaiah is talking about doesn't just show itself in spectacular images of war like a, a, you know, a river bursting its banks. It shows itself in a GP surgery or the hospital consulting room when you get a diagnosis that you just weren't expecting. It doesn't just find itself in this striking image of darkness, of gloom, of distress, of refugees wandering the earth. But in the moment you're called into your boss's office and told, I'm sorry, we're going to have to let you go. See, whether you describe yourself as a Christian or not, when you're faced with uncertainty, when you're faced with a real threat to your own security, where do you turn? And if it's to yourself, can I be so bold as to ask the question, how's that working out for you? Whether you admit it or not, whether you're honest enough with yourself to admit it or not, you and I are completely ill-equipped to be our own God, to be our own king, and to handle things ourselves. And so Isaiah points to someone you can trust, to a coming king. And we reach those famous verses that you've all been waiting for, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 9. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, the point isn't just that light shines because God promises all war will be over. The point is that light shines because God promises himself that he'll enter into the darkness of a broken world as the king that we all long for, the king that we all need. So the birth of a baby in a cow shed in first century Palestine, as rough and ready as that was, was the coming of God's king. And he was and is a wonderful counselor. He is mighty God himself, the everlasting father and the prince of peace. And so more important than the end of all war, more important than the end of all oppression, is the one who will bring all that stuff, a king who is absolutely worthy of your trust. But I hope you see this morning that that leaves us with a challenge, as it did the people of Judah, because there could not be two kings on the throne. There was an abdication required somewhere. Either the people cling to res and they cling to, their own way of, cling to their own way of wheeling and dealing, or they submit themselves to this king that God will provide. And the question 
that if you remember nothing else this morning that I leave you with is just who is on the throne of your life. And if you answer honestly, and the answer is you, how is that going? Now, you might have come along this morning hoping for a really festive message, and I'm sorry that that's not been the case. But I hope you see that Isaiah's point isn't a cozy one, but it is an immensely comforting one. If you've never thought about it before, now would be a great time to consider how you handle life's difficulties and uncertainties. Not the threat of impending war, but job uncertainties, financial insecurity, the threat of ill health of yourself or of a loved one, difficulties in family relationships that you're just not sure how things are going to pan out. Isaiah says, it's time to get off the throne. Submit yourself to a wonderful counselor, to a mighty God, an everlasting father and a prince of peace. Worship God's king who came that first Christmas time. But as we close, there is a bit of an elephant in the room, and I want to address it before um, we finish our time together this morning under our final heading, Return of the King. Now, you'll maybe remember uh, earlier on I read an extract from Captain Hulse's diary on the Christmas truce. But less well reported is what happened a few miles away on the same day. Listen to the account of another captain, Captain Billy Congreve of Christmas Day 1914. The Germans tried a truce. They came over towards us singing. So we opened rapid fire on them, which is the only truce they deserve. It's pretty stark, isn't it? It's pretty sobering stuff. But it's the reality of the world that we live in, and we know. Because 2015 has been no different from any of the years before it. The wars in Syria... Acts of terror in Paris, in Beirut, in Baghdad. Hundreds of thousands of people displaced by refugee crises all over the world. And so it's easy for me at Christmas time to stand up the front and speak of peace on earth as a comforting, warm, cozy blanket to all of us. But the elephant in the room is that if the end of war, the end of armed conflict, the end of oppression are signs of all that this king will bring, and if Jesus really is the king that God promises in Isaiah, why is that not our experience today? Well, I suspect that Isaiah would probably find himself asking the same question. Because the reality for him was that war did come. The Assyrians did arrive. And exile did happen to the people of Judah. They were taken away. And even though there'd be a return to Jerusalem, they still waited 750 years for the promised king for the birth of the Lord Jesus. And we find ourselves standing on this side of the birth of Jesus, the child who was born, the son who was given. The birth of Jesus is a historical event for us, not something that we hope for as a future event. And it's true, the birth of the baby did set in motion the coming of the kingdom that Isaiah promises in Isaiah 9. But it didn't complete it. Remember I mentioned earlier on that Isaiah has a short lens and a long lens on his camera. Well, the long lens points not just to the first coming of Jesus, to the birth of the baby, but to the return of the king. Because the Bible tells us that he will come again. And so Christmas time becomes not just a time of remembrance for Christians, of when the baby was born, 
but one of anticipation of when the king will return, not as a baby, not vulnerable and crying, but as a ruling and reigning king, bringing with him the perfect world that God describes in Isaiah 9. And we can trust that he'll come again because he did come as a baby that first Christmas time. And so this Christmas, both looking back and looking forward in an act of remembrance and one of excited anticipation, we sing together, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it rings so true to us that it's not just something historical that we need to try and make relevant, but that it so clearly is relevant to us. And Lord, this morning we ask that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to see where we are making ourselves king, trusting in our own ability to sort out our own problems. And instead, Lord, allow us to get down off the throne and to trust in the king that you provided, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.